as you uh, well know, those of you who have, um, who gather with us regularly, and um, you'll you know um, that we've been going through um, a sermon series called "The Gospel in the Household of God," and it's it's just taking us through First Timothy, the letter to First Timothy. Um, you know, I I. Um, I am really convicted and convinced that what we need more of is what's called um, expositional preaching, that we take God's word and we preach through it. Um, You know, some people call that, well, verse by verse or chapter by chapter. Um, So we, for the most part, I like to take us through the verses. Um, Sometimes we'll kind of skip around and jump around and, and kind of address, you know, we want to, we want to we want to know exactly what God's word says. We want to know what this passage of scripture, for instance, what we're looking at this morning, we want to know what it says and then we want to be challenged by it and changed by it, transformed by it. We want to be obedient to it, really. Um when God changes our heart and makes us a new creation, he gives us a heart that wants to know God and wants to obey God. And we have, that's where our motivation comes from, through the gospel. So we're going to jump into this, but before we do, I just want to take a moment to kind of rewind a little bit um, before we go into chapter 3. Last week, we, we uh, looked at uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. We saw there um, how God wants the men to, to have personal holiness in their worship. To, to come before God, um, having dealt with the issues in their, in their lives, in their relationships, um, come to God in repentance, uh, address the sin in their life, so that when they are coming in, they're lifting up holy hands to God without anger or quarreling. Um, we, we looked at how Paul wanted the women to, um, instead of, like a lot of the women of his culture, they were dressing for success. They were dressing for a mate. They were dressing to um, attract instead of dressing with um, what, did he, what he says, modesty and self-control. To dress in such a way that, that their outer appearance is not distracting from their inner character. Their inner character, the, the inner beauty that is in a child, a daughter of the king of the universe. Um, and to live uh, with good works. Um, we also saw how um, Paul had some really direct words about women, you are to learn in the congregation, in the life of the church, quietly, he said, with submissiveness. We tried to unpack a little bit about what he was trying to get at, what that meant. He says very directly in 12, I, I do not, this is an apostolic command carrying the authority of Christ, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather to remain quiet. Um, and he, and he re- refers to Adam and Eve, and he refers to women uh, being saved through childbearing. Um, I just wanted to, to rewind about and, and just address that really quickly before we jump in today. Because I think, um, although everything that I said, I'm not going to recant from anything that I preached last week, I did want to address it and say, well, what does that mean for women in the church? What, it, what, what should they do? What is their role in the church? Is it that they're just 
Okay, so you're telling me that, so women are just supposed to be mothers and bear children, be wives and mothers, and that's it? That's what they're good for? I'm hoping, I'm, I'm hoping that some of you will say, I'm not sure about that. Mm, probably not. Because I think there's more to it. I think there's a lot more to it. Um, there's, although there is a functional difference between men and women in a marriage relationship, men and women in leadership within the church, um, what Paul is not saying is that women have no spiritual gift to offer to the church. Women have been gifted with the gift of, dare I say, teaching, um, prophecy, uh, helps, um, tongues. We can talk about tongues and whether it's a gift nowadays or not. But, but Paul, when Paul talks about these gifts and of the Spirit in the, in the New Testament, he's not saying, oh, only some of those are for the men and some of them are for the women. So what does that mean? Because, see, see, in my family, um, I've discovered that Cheryl is really good at keeping track of, say, things like, where's our money going? <laughs> and, and I'm really good at the, at the technical part of it, the accounting part of it. I mean, man, I get that. I get that balance sheet um, zeroed out. I, I'm really good at that part of it, but I don't have any desire to do it. <laughs> and she... Although she's not really skillful at the actual working of it, she's really good at motivating it. She's really good at, let's get on to that. She's a really good teacher, too. My wife has the gift of discernment. She's, got the, she's not here, so I'm going to just kind of, you know, you can tell her later that I said all these things about her. She's got the gift of discernment. She's got the gift of wisdom. She is an able teacher. She can look at God's Word and explain it to other people and uh, lead people into faith in Christ. She's, she's very gifted in those ways. So what does this mean? Um, I, I think it, it, if I were to kind of explain um, what that might look like, um, there's nothing stopping women from being a Beth Moore, for instance. Teaching the Bible. Having an understanding and a giftedness in teaching the Bible, right? But what he is saying, though, is that although there's all kinds of places for women to serve right alongside the men and serve in really uh, um, amazing and gifted ways, there is a place for the man in the church, that God created the man to be in that pastoral leadership role in the local church. So that's, so that's why um, in our church, we don't have women pastors. We're not going to have any women pastors. That's why in the River Church we're not going to have women elders. Because, as, as we're going to see in just a moment, jumping into this, this is related to what we're going to talk about today. Um, we'll see that God created men to take those roles in his church. So, um, there's a lot more to be said to that, and there's a lot more that could be argued about that. A lot of people who think differently, believe differently on both sides of things. Um, and we can discuss those over coffee sometime, but I just wanted to um, just kind of go back to that and, and like, especially for you women um, who are thinking, well, I have gifts. I have ability. I, I can be actually, you go back to the Proverbs. We've been joking. I've been joking with my wife about Proverbs 31 women, and I made a comment earlier 
before the worship gathering too. You read the Proverbs 31 woman, and you, this is a woman who's an entrepreneur. She's getting work done. She's got her own business. She's making money. She's doing stuff. She's, I mean, this w- woman is gifted. And of course, none of us, I say us very loosely, women, um, can live up to that high standard without Christ and without his grace in our lives. But, but you see that there's a lot of places, there are a lot of places to serve. But that role of being the head of a church, the, or the, not really, shouldn't say the head because Christ is the head of the church, but the under-shepherd, the under-overseer, the under-elder, uh, as Christ is our chief shepherd, he's our chief pastor, he's our chief elder, he's our chief overseer, but the men are placed in that position so that they can demonstrate the gospel in, in the church and in their families, etc. So, uh, and, and then I want to say this. <clears throat> Verse 1 of chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy. Um, I put it into the reading last week, and I totally skipped over at the end of my message. I just said, um, whoop, forget that. Just jumped over my notes. Um, I, I connected it last week because um, although we see in our English Bibles, it always starts off chapter 3. And it says the saying is trustworthy. And usually, usually there's a little colon there saying what I'm about to say next is the trustworthy saying. And there's a lot of scholars. And in fact, the New Testament itself in the original language, they don't have verses. They don't have chapters. Um, and most, uh, well, I won't say most, but many scholars think, that's, that phrase is probably connected with the previous saying about a woman being saved through childbearing. The previous, uh, the previous trustworthy saying in 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy that Christ Jesus came, came into the world to save sinners. And it seems like these trustworthy sayings, these things that we should really hold on to, deal with our salvation. The things that are really important are things that deal with salvation. God is saving people. Jesus is saving sinners. And that is something that we can trust. That is something we can hold on to. And he is going to save women just the same as he's going to save men. Men and women through faith in Jesus in their continuation, as Paul said, in faith and love and holiness with self-control. These are the things that God produces in a woman just as he produces in a man when they come to faith in Christ. So I wanted to address that. And if you, if you disagree with me and say, well, no, 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 it's the next saying, that's fine too. Because it's all trustworthy because it's all God's word. So it's kind of like um, um, cutting hairs or whatever that term is. Anyway, all right, so let's talk through this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Self-controlled, sober-minded, turn him around, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with, uh, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And then he says, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace 
into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. God, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that you will speak through me, your word, uh, your understanding that you want us to have. So that God, as we go away from here, I know that you're going to say a lot of things and you're going to say something really specific to each and every one of us. And so God, I just pray that you will uh, lodge that seed, that trustworthy saying, that, that word from you deep in our heart and help it to grow, to transform us. God, we give you all the praise and all the glory, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's get into this. Um, you have a handout, um, and if you want to take notes, you can fill in some of the blanks there, or are all the blanks that Yeah, you should have some blanks there, I think, and you can fill those out and kind of follow along. That's sort of going to be our outline um, for this message, and then we'll kind of fill in some stuff around it too. But let's talk about this. The office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Verse two, verse 2, he says, therefore, an overseer. What is an overseer? Some translations, going all the way back to the King James Version, um, say a bishop. A bishop. So if somebody wants to be a bishop, uh, a bishop must be this and that and the other thing. Um, the actual word, uh, so here we go, I'm going to Greek out on you a little bit. But the actual word is episkopos. That's the actual Greek word. That should sound a little bit familiar if you're aware of other kinds of denominations out there. Episkopos, um, episcopal. Right? There's the Episcopal Church, the, or we call them Episcopalian, um, th- that term. Well, um, the, well, the Episcopal Church, just so you know, came from the Church of England, came from the Anglican tradition. So they're basically the Anglican Church, essentially the Anglican Church in America, although there's some fractures in their denomination over the last few years, but we won't get into that. But, but the point is, they, their church really is named after this Greek word for that they translate as bishop. So they see the Episcopal Church as a church established with bishops in different places, very similar to the Catholic Church, and they oversee uh, large regions, many churches, and the priests who serve in those churches and the people who are in those churches. And so a lot of people go, well, that's a bishop, right? Well, let's take a look at another passage. We're just going to kind of hunt around today. Would you um, flip back to towards the back of your Bible, two more letters to Titus. Titus. And let's see what what he has to say. Titus actually chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And here's what Paul says to Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, a little island in the Mediterranean, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone, I'm going to keep going, you'll see why. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, that sounds familiar, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or or insubordination, he's talking about elders, right? This is what an elder's got to be like. And then verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, 
hospitable. He needs to be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Um, I could go on. Well, why do I bring us? Up? Why do I bring us to that passage right there? Because in one thought that Paul has, in one description of the kind of person who's supposed to be leading the local church, or at least helping in the leading of the local church, he uses the term elder and the term overseer. He uses the term overseer, which is episkopos, and he uses the term elder, which is the term presbyteros. Presbyteros, presbytery, presbyterian. Hmm. Okay, so now we got references to two different Christian denominations that are out there in the world, two different terms for the same person. For the same person. This is interesting. Okay, well, so we're not done. We're still playing the the Bible search game. We're going to flip back to the book of Acts. Acts. The Acts of the Apostles. So that's that's a little bit further back. It's right after the Gospels, if you're looking for it. Um, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And it's a long chapter. I'm going to read it all. No, I'm not going to read it all. I'm, don't worry, I won't read the whole thing. I'm going to, I'm going to take you to um, verse 17, first of all. Verse 17. So, so here's what's going on. The, the physician, the doctor Luke, uh, Luke who was a doctor, is writing this account of the early church and talking about the things that Paul did. He's writing this account, and he says now, from Miletus, a little town on the edge uh, or near Greece, um, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, which is another town right on the edge of modern-day Turkey, and called the elders, the elders of the church. It's interesting that, I'll put this out, it's interesting that there are more than one elder that he's talking about. It's not just the elder of the church. But he's saying the elders, so there's more than one. There might have been two, but probably there were several. There were probably half a dozen or so. It was a, it was a large church. He called the elders of the church to come to him. So this is the church in Ephesus, multiple elders there. And Paul said he wants to get together with them. They come and, he's, and he wants to give them basically a final message. He believes he's probably never going to see their face again. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He expects to be arrested in Jerusalem, arrested and then sent to Rome. Well, he hopes to go to Rome eventually, um, but he knows that his future looks pretty desperate. And so he wants to see these elders and impart to them some, some teaching, some wisdom, some training. Multiple elders at the church in Ephesus, which incidentally happens to be the same church that Timothy was serving in when Paul wrote, First Timothy to him. So just kind of get that connection. Now, go down with me, because I'm not going to read this whole speech he made, but go down to verse 28. Go down to verse 28. Chapter, so Acts chapter 2, verse, excuse me, 20, verse 28. And he says to this, he says this, Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock, the people in the church, common term, sheep, the the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you, what is it? Overseer. To care for the church of God, 
which he obtained with his own blood. To care for the church of God is a great, it's a great translation. It, it tells us exactly what a pastor is supposed to do over the church, over the people that he has been charged with leading. To care for the church of God, another way to say that would be to pastor the church of God, to shepherd the church of God, because indeed that's what that, that word means. That's exactly what that word means. So in one passage, Paul is talking to numerous elders of a church, and he's telling them that they are overseers, and that they are to do the job of shepherding, pastoring. So what does that mean? So although there may be some who disagree with me, I believe very firmly that when Paul is talking to to Timothy about overseers, he's talking about the same person in the church who is an elder, pastor, overseer. He's not talking about different positions in the church. He's not saying that there are some, there are some bishops, and then there are also um, elders, and then besides the elders, there are pastors. He's talking about one kind of person who is in leadership in the local church. So, you can write that down, you can quote me on it, and then you can argue with me about it later if you need to, or we can just discuss, well, well what about other churches who do things like this, or how about other churches who do things like that? And then we can, we can get into the nitty-gritty. But I believe that what Paul is doing, and we're seeing this not only from 1 Timothy 3, but we're seeing how he has talked about overseers, elders, pastors in other parts of the New Testament, that he's talking about the same person. He's talking about the same person. And he says that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, pastor, he desires a noble task. Literally, he desires a good work. He longs for a good work to do. It is a good thing. It's a really good thing to want to be an overseer, to want to shepherd God's people, to want to lead God's people. It is a really good thing to want to do that, to be an elder in the local church. Not not for the reasons that we may think of. Well, the power, the influence, the authority, the getting my way, the finally, I get to do things how I want to do them, right? No, he's saying this is a thing to aspire to. I believe that that God has given it into the heart of every man to work and care for what God has entrusted to him. That was, that's the, that was the Genesis mandate. In the garden, God put the man he created, Adam. He formed him, put him in the garden to work the garden, to care for, to shepherd, to pastor what God had entrusted to him to care for it, to keep it. That's a good thing. It's a natural thing for us as men to want to rise up and say, you know what? I need to mature in my faith. I need to, I want to aspire to lead like Christ leads the church. I want to aspire to be like Jesus in that way. And, 
And then in verse 2, um, Paul says, okay, so this is so important. This is so important that um, there's a therefore. <laughs> this is, it's such a big deal. It's such a good thing to aspire to that, that he says, therefore, let's talk about this. Let's get into this. Um, let's see what this is supposed to look like. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach, that means that he lives his life so as that people can't come in and say, well, what about that? Oh, I heard he did that. Or what about this relationship that he has? Or what about this that he's doing with his money? Um, that he is living in such a way to be above reproach. Above reproach. This speaks to the idea that overseers, going to your handout, overseers display the gospel through moral reliability. Through moral reliability. These are men who are reliable. Morally. Look at, look at what else he says here. Above reproach, he says, the husband of one wife, I'm going to come back to that in a second, that they're sober-minded, sober-minded, they're, they are self-controlled, they are respectable, they are hospitable, they are able to teach, I'm going to come back to that one in a second too, he, in verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent, but they're gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Okay, so each one of these terms could, be, there could be a whole separate chapter in a book or a whole separate message on every one of them to just unpack them and do word studies and figure out what they all mean. But in general, they speak to the kind of character that a, an elder, an overseer, a pastor is supposed to have in the local church, in his own life. That he's a man who is able to be sober in his mind. Sobriety. He is able to control himself. He doesn't fly off. He's respectable. People look to him and say, yeah, he's a respectable person. He's, he's somebody that I trust. He's somebody that deserves honor. He's hospitable. Now, this one could be unpacked a little bit more. The, the idea there, that the concept, the wording in the original is the idea that you are somebody who, who entertains strangers. That you take strangers into your home or feed them or you're looking for ways that you can use your, your, your family, your, your home, your resources to be a blessing to people who even you don't know. To be hospitable. Not a drunkard? That seems pretty obvious. It means, um, not a drunkard. <laughs> not getting drunk on wine, getting drunk on Beer, getting drunk on alcohol of any kind. Um, boy, some of the descriptions of the way the Romans lived back in this time would would um, would most of us would blush to to read about the things that they did. My gosh, and drinking was a big part of it. So interesting. We'll 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 jump to this later. Uh, but let me just let me just. Um, Throw this out there because later in the letter, um, Paul is going to give Timothy a very direct command. Um, he's going to tell Timothy, um, stop drinking only water, but use a little wine. Drink, drink some wine occasionally because you have these stomach problems, you have these ailments. So, um, right, right there, we can, we can, uh, we can just kind of, well, is it medicinal wine? Was it, you know, 
was it just for health reasons or or not? Um, but let me let me put this out that there's a question here. There's a question about drinking. There's there are a lot of us who say don't drink at all, and some of us will come down and say drinking is a sin. Don't drink. Don't ever drink alcohol. Others would say, well, okay, not to get don't get drunk. It's okay occasionally here and there. There's a question about that. But what Paul does say. And the wording here that he uses is very specific. It's about drunkenness. He's very specific. The, the question here is drunkenness. Being drunk. If you're drinking wine or beer or going out and having a good time with your friends and you're getting drunk, Paul says, Mm-mm, that's not the life of an elder, overseer, pastor. That's not, what, that's not how you should live. So keep that in mind. Um, we can we can kind of debate some other passages of scripture on that whether or not we should ever drink any wine or beer at all at any time. But the the question here is: Are you living above reproach? How are people looking at your life? Are they going? Gosh, I don't know. Is he respectable? Is he above reproach? Does he get drunk sometime? I don't know. But as an elder, overseer, pastor, we need to consider. What kinds of habits are we engaged in? What kinds of things are we, are we a part of? What is our life characterized by? Not violent. Literally, not a bully. Not a bully. Not throwing your weight around. We don't need, we don't need people to lead the local church who want to force uh, everybody to do what they want to do, to manipulate people, to intimidate people into doing what they want them to do, even to the point of, guess what? If you don't, if you don't shape up, man, I'll smack you down. I'll kick you out of the door. I'll use physical force on you. I know that in our day and age, um, there's a lot of this kind of this this movement of men need to be men. So let's get in. Let's let's do MMA. You know, let's get into UFC fighting. Let's let's be willing to duke it out. With some deacons. We may want to do that. You know, that may seem like a fun thing to do every once in a while. But that's not what Paul's saying. Not violent. Not a bully. Not throwing your weight around. Not enforcing your rule. But gentle. This is the only time in the entire, this entire um, long uh, section where he says, but. Where he says, not one thing. And then he uses the word, but. For another thing. The, the point is very clear. Gentleness should be the way we treat people. Gentleness is how overseers, elders, and pastors need to handle their congregation. Not quarrelsome. In other words, not willing to fight on everything. So, for instance, let's talk about overseers. Are they elders? Are they pastors? Are they bishops? Um, guess what? I don't want to quarrel about that. I don't want to get an argument about that. Especially not in public. Um, let's talk about, uh, well, what about this drinking thing? Is it okay to drink occasionally? Um, it, should we never drink at all? Um, I, guess what? I don't want to quarrel about that. I don't want to argue about it. It's not worth debating because Paul said, don't be quarrelsome about these things. Don't be getting into fights all the time. You don't, you don't have to win every argument. And this is something that Paul speaks to me through the Holy Spirit all the time. You don't have to win every argument. You don't have to be right all the time. Not a lover of money. That's pretty obvious. We're not in it for money. 
We're not in it to make a living. We're not in it to get the big house. We're not in it to get the nice car. That's not why an overseer, elder, pastor um, does what he does. We take a pay cut, and then, we, and then we realize that when we do that, God blesses us with everything we need. He takes care of all of our needs. We're not in it for the money, not a lover of money. So moral reliability, all of those things speak to moral reliability. Overseers also display the gospel through demonstrated family leadership. Demonstrated family leadership. A lot of these, um, just so you know, a lot of these are going to go a lot quicker, okay? A lot of them are going to go a lot quicker through this outline. He says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Um, a man who has submissive children is doing one of two things. He's doing something right because his children are listening to him. Or he might be violent, not gentle. <laughs> Maybe there's threat of force. So how do we judge then? How do we judge? How do we know? How do we know? Just because the children are submissive, does that mean that he is automatically qualified doing all the right things? What if he's intimidating his family? What if he's intimidating his wife? Don't say anything about this or, or it'll come back to you. Kids, if you dare get out of line while we're at church or we're at this function, man, I will. Okay, I've said things like that to my kids. They don't believe me. Um, <clears throat> but is it threat of force that, are, that we're getting our kids to submit? Or do they, are they submitting because we are demonstrating the gospel in our own family relationship? And they're seeing daddy's worth somebody worth, worth respecting. He is above reproach. My daddy is not violent. He's gentle. My daddy isn't, um, he, he, my daddy's self-controlled. My daddy is sober-minded. He's not a drunkard. He doesn't fly off. He doesn't go out of, he doesn't get out of control. With all dignity, with all dignity, keeping your children submissive, managing your household well. And you know what? Honestly, sometimes that means, honey, you take care of the checkbook. That's how I'm going to manage things. Honey, you take care of the money. <laughs> you hold on to the cash. When I need something, I'll come and I'll get an allowance from you. Sometimes that's what that means. Sometimes it means um, managing your household well means, um, uh, men, you do the dishes. Men, you cook the meal. Men, you do the laundry. Because maybe your wife has other things to... <laughs> some of you are like, ooh, did you hear that he said? He said this? Yes, I just said it. Um, something I need to hear too. Sometimes men, we as men, if we want to care for, if we want to be good overseers, we're going to recognize that and some of, some of our wives have really good skills that they're putting to use in a lot of different ways. And, that's, and maybe we as men need to step in and go, you know what, my wife is a lot better at this in the house, so I'm, gonna, I'm going to allow her to just lead out in that area, and I'm going to just come along and be supportive as well. So we could talk about, this is, this is not about gender role. This is about managing. It's about ge- being a good steward, which is what that word mean, manage means. Being a good steward. Your wife has skills. Your wife has abilities. Are you stewarding them well? Your family has skills and abilities. Are you stewarding them well? Are you managing them well? Jumping back, um, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Honestly, you know what? 
he starts the whole thing off with the husband of one wife. He says he's a, 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 an overseas above reproach. And the very next word he says is the husband of one wife. Literally, um, a one woman man. There's only one woman for me. That's Cheryl. There's only one woman in my life. That's Cheryl. So what do I need to do? I need to guard my heart. I need to guard my eyes. I need to guard my relationships. I need to guard my face. Okay? I need to do things so I can demonstrate that I'm the husband of one wife because most ministries disintegrate at this point right here because a husband didn't guard his heart, didn't guard his eyes, didn't guard his face, and instead fell into sin. Here's another place where we can argue. What does he mean? Does he mean that it has to be a man who's only ever been married once in his life and is still married to that one woman for for the rest of his life or till death do us part? Um, What about a man who has been divorced in the past, gets remarried and is faithful to his wife? What if there was sin in his past life? What if there was unbelief? What if he wasn't a believer in his past life and he made a lot of mistakes? What if he did all of those things and now he's walking in Christ and, and in the grace of the gospel? How should we How should we view this? Is he qualified or not? I was in Ethiopia a couple of years ago. Here's an interesting question. Because um, I was, I don't know why I I was doing this. I probably had no business teaching this. I was teaching this very passage to over about three or four days to a group of Ethiopian pastors. Don't ask me why I got into that that job. I probably had no business doing it. But there I was teaching through this, talking about, well, you know, you as pastors, I'm talking to all these Ethiopian men who are pastors of their churches. This is how you need to be. And then they asked the question, well, we have a lot of, we have a lot of men in our church um, who have more than one wife. So what about them? I mean, they, they want to serve God. They, they want to be, they want to be a husband of one wife. They've got gifts, they've got, they've got teaching and gifts, and they're believers now, and their wives are believers, and oh boy, how do we do this? How do we answer that question? Do they divorce all of their wives except for the first one? Send them all away with their kids, like Abraham did with, with Hagar? Go away, take Ishmael with you, get out of here, here, here's, here's some money, here's a knapsack, take care of, you know. Good luck. I'll tell you what I tell you what I said. I said, Paul said, "How did you come to Christ? Did you come to Christ single, married? Stay there. What does that mean in a polygam uh, a polygamous relationship? Well, maybe it needs you need to change the way you relate to your your so called wives. Maybe you know what I'm saying." Maybe your relations with those wives have to change. But guess what? You send them out, they're immediately going to prostitution. That's the end of the story. You, you, you cast them away from you, you divorce them all, they have nowhere to go, nobody wants them, nobody will take them. And the only way for them to live is in prostitution, and that's what happens a lot of times with those women. So what do you do? Well, you made a promise to them in your culture, you better take care of them, you better take care of that woman and you better take care of those children. But does that mean you're qualified to be a biblical elder, overseer, 
Pastor? Maybe not. Maybe not. And that's okay. Because you can still serve God. You can still love Him in the place where you're at right now. So divorce, the que- he doesn't address the question of divorce here. Paul's silent about it here. He doesn't say, here's what you should do with a divorced man. If he does this, is he, if he goes through a 12-step program, if he is demonstrated um, over a pro- pro- probationary period that he's faithful to his current husband, now he can serve as a... He doesn't say any of that stuff. He doesn't say any of that stuff, yay or nay. So there's something we can argue about. We'll get to that later. Overseers display the gospel through skilled teaching. Skilled teaching. Teaching. He says, overseers are able to teach. The able to teach. The ability. They have the ability to teach. So you don't want to get an overseer who doesn't know how to teach from God's word. Because they are spiritually overseeing the church. They're supposed to lead the church. If they can't communicate faithfully God's word, then they shouldn't be in that function. That doesn't mean they necessarily have what we call the gift of teaching, because he doesn't say they have to have the gift of teaching. Teaching is a skill that you can develop. Some people are gifted in it, and by the Spirit's power, they they teach, and they got it nailed. But they must have the ability to teach. If they're going to be in that role within the church, they need to have the ability to teach. Overseers display the gospel through spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Um, I kind of skipped over verse 5, but you know that God relating, or Paul is relating um, the leadership of a man in his household to the leadership of proving himself faithful to be a leader in the church on time or whatever it might be. You, if you have a bad reputation with outsiders, the gospel witness is nil in your local church. God will do things despite you, but not through you. Despite you, but not through you. So here we go. We're, we're supposed to see here that the gospel is demonstrated in the lives of overseers in all of these various ways. Um, you might have noticed men that, and women too, but speaking to you men, you may have noticed, men, that this is an extremely high standard. And you're thinking, yeesh, I don't know if I'm there. And then I look at that and go, okay, well, I'm the husband of one wife. I'm not a drunkard. I'm not a lover of money. I think I, lead my, I manage my household well, but there, you know, things, I, I fail every day at that. I fail every day at managing my household well. I'm not a very gentle person, as I, as I should. I'm not a gentle person like I should. You know what? I'm prone to quarrelsomeness. I like a good debate about things that I care passionately about. Um, I don't always exercise self-control. What am I supposed to do? You know, I, I don't always live up to the standard. That's why it's the gospel demonstrated. The gospel demonstrated in our lives. When we come to an honest assessment of who we are, and we come to the foot of the cross and we say, Jesus, here's who I am. I'm aspiring to lead well. I'm just like Solomon said to to God, God, if there's one thing you can do for me, please give me wisdom to lead your people well. Your people are great. They're numerous. They're amazing. Your church, if I could paraphrase, your church, God, is amazing. It's full of amazing people. 
It's full of servants. It's full of humble um, servants who, who just want to see God be glorified and work in, his, in their families and in this community and in this church. I need wisdom and I need grace because I fail at every day. The, God, the overseers have a high standard, but the overseers receive grace from God. Overseers, elders, pastors, you know, we, got, we have to get grace from God every single day. And we need the power of God through the Holy Spirit to lead well. Um, we sang that song, there is power in the name of Jesus. The gospel is our power. And when we are being the overseers that God has created us to be, called us to be, and we are looking to this and saying, God, here's, my, here's the standard that you have for my life. Please work in me. Please develop this in me. I want to repent. I want, to, I want him to do something in me that I can't do on my own. I want him to, to be the pastor of this church. I want him to be the elder of this church. I want him to be the overseer of this church. And I just want to be under him. And I want to receive his grace. And I want to receive his power. To do that, we, we want to display the gospel in that way. The gospel is not a message of perfection. The gospel is not a message of, we've got it all together, follow me. Paul said, follow my example as I follow Christ. You know why? Because I'm a dirty dog. And I need to follow Jesus because he's the only way to salvation. So follow me as I humble myself before Jesus. And I allow him to develop in me these characters. Let's pray. Father, that's, that's just my prayer right there. God, that you would, um, you would do such a thing in my life, do such a work in my life, that you would make me like your son. Jesus fully demonstrated every single one of these characteristics. The husband of one wife, well, guess what? He's the faithful husband of his bride, the church. In every way, God, Jesus fulfilled these qualifications. And as we, God, as we humbly follow you and seek to live this out, we are, we are able, by your grace and because of you and nothing in ourselves, we're able to, to d- display it, to, to, to proclaim the good news, the gospel. We're able to proclaim that to you, to all the people around us, to the people in our church who need the gospel every day, every believer who needs the gospel every day, every week, to all the people outside who don't know you yet, those, those individuals that we are praying for now and we will be praying for over the next 90 days. We want to display that gospel to you as good leaders, good overseers, elders, pastors. Help us to do that by your grace for our joy in you, God. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to go into our time of response. And um, today, not tonight, but today, um, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Celebrate 
our communion. Um, it's communion is our 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 being with Jesus, our being a part of His body because of what He because His body was broken for us because His blood was poured out for us. We can have fellowship with God. We can have fellowship with Christ. And we can have true community within the body as well. True community within the body. Um, Paul, I just want to share this with you. Um, Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless. He's talking about He's talking about that meal that they celebrated together. That cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. One body. For we all partake of the one bread. Then he says later, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a wonderful celebration. It, it's rich with meaning, rich with symbolism. It's rich with spiritual significance as well. We come, we come to receive from God, to be partakers of Christ. Now. This, this bread and this wine doesn't magically transform inside of our body. It's bread and it's, well, it's not wine. It's juice. It's high-quality juice. But it doesn't, it doesn't magically turn into something different in our bodies. But when we come to this table to partake, we are saying, I want to be in you, Jesus, and I want you to be in me. We are in Christ. We are in fellowship with him because we are his body. We are the church and we are in fellowship with one another. Um, if, if we have some things that we have to get right between ourselves and God, we, we need to do that before we come to the table. Not, be, not so that we will be, oh God, I've got to be perfect before I can come take communion, but because we want to experience grace, the grace of repentance and forgiveness. So we, we express that to God through prayer. We're going to listen to a song here. We're going to, um, what I'm going to do is what we do um, each time that we celebrate communion. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite you to come up as you feel ready to. We come to the table because it's really symbol, symbolic of how we come to Christ and we receive from him. Um, so we're going to come to the table and I invite you just to, Partake of the bread and the cup right there at the table.